Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So I, as I was praying, I heard my uh, mic uh, blanking out a little bit there. So if that, if that happens, we'll, uh, I'll grab one of these wirelesses. So how you guys doing today? Everybody good? Good seeing you. Good seeing this crowd. You guys look good. I'm warming up the audience. That's what we do. Um, When's the <laughs> that's right. My grandma Thelma had this amazing cast iron skillet. It was incredible. And part of the reason that it was incredible is because she had been cooking with this cast iron skillet for decades. And so cooked into the iron was all these amazing, delicious, beautiful flavors. There was um, steak. There was liver and onions. Come on. Liver and onions? Yes. There was uh, biscuits and gravy. There was fried chicken. There was chicken pot pies. There was bacon. There was everything. Anything onions. I mean, it was amazing. So these flavors were just baked in to the skillet. And whenever you would cook something, fry something, the flavors, those flavors, those decades of flavors would come out into the food that you were cooking. And it just made the food that much better. That's one of the beautiful things of a cast iron skillet. Well, a couple years ago for Christmas, I got a new cast iron skillet. And as I was examining this thing, you know, there were no defects with it. There were no scratches it wasn't bent, it wasn't warped, there was nothing wrong with it. Like if you're just examining, it was like flawless. But then I started to cook with it and I noticed that the flavor wasn't there. It was missing something. It was missing decades and decades of Grandma Thelma's cooking. Even though there was nothing wrong with it, it still hadn't been seasoned and prepared in a way that made the food more delicious. And what I learned is that for a cast iron skillet, having no defects isn't good enough. That just because it's flawless doesn't mean it's seasoned and ready to be used. It needs to be seasoned over the years. And I want to use this illustration today to help us get a little fuller understanding of what it means to be a mature Christian who has been seasoned over the years to be useful to God. And here are the terms we're going to use. We're going to say it's not enough for us to be blameless, although that's important. We also have to be holy. Now, those things, you hear that, and it sounds like the same thing, because a lot of times we hear those two words, and it sounds blameless and holy, we think are synonyms. But my whole goal for us today is to realize that they're not. They don't mean the same thing. And so we're going to spend the rest of this time uh, talking about it. 
So I have a question. Now, I'll, I'll preface it with this. If, if you're exploring Christianity, you're not really sure about this, we always want people in this room who are exploring Christianity. Like, that's our entire, like, one of our main goals is to be a, a place where you feel safe enough to explore what it looks like to follow Jesus around people that care about you and that aren't going to be judgmental and that aren't going to give you canned answers when you ask really hard questions. Like, we want to be that type of church community. So if you're here exploring Christianity, you know, we, you probably have heard this before, but we believe that God created this beautiful world in the beginning of creation, and he created two people, Adam and Eve, and he gave them one restriction in this garden. It was not to eat from this tree of um, the knowledge of good and evil, and there was a reason for that. It wasn't just, he wasn't just making things up for them not to do. There was a reason for it, and they said, basically, we want to make our own rules, and you know, even though we have thousands of other trees that we could eat from, we're going to choose that one just because you said we, we're not allowed. It's like having a toddler. So they introduced something that we call the fall. It means that the world became mangled. This pristine and beautiful creation was broken and distorted and tainted with what we call sin. So I have a question for us folks, some of us who grew up in the church, and don't nod your heads because it's a trap. See, I'm loving, I tell you beforehand. Before sin came into the world, were Adam and Eve perfect? We say this a lot. I mean, people say this. Adam and Eve were perfect. I wish they would have never sinned because then we would all be perfect like them and you know, we wouldn't be tainted and distorted by sin. Were Adam and Eve perfect before the fall? And I believe the answer is no. So before you get up and walk out, give me a second. Because I believe that they were blameless. I believe that they hadn't sinned. I believe that they hadn't done anything wrong yet. But they weren't perfect. They weren't holy. If Adam and Eve were cast iron skillets, they'd be like the new cast iron skillet that I got for Christmas. You know, there's no defects. There's no, it's not flawless, but not quite fit for use yet. And what I'm saying is Adam and Eve were blameless but not holy, which means they weren't fit for heaven yet. And when the Bible uses the word perfect, it means fully mature, fully ripe. And we want to be the type of people that, you know, the Bible talks in terms of God's character shining through us. It uses a phrase called fruit of the Spirit. And we want to have fully orbed fruit, fully developed, fully mature followers of Jesus. Another word for perfect is holy. Holiness shows off the moral beauty of God, primarily all the things that emanate from his love. So why is this relevant for us? It's relevant for us because the most important thing in your life, this is really, really important, the most important thing in your life is not what you do, but who you become. 
It's not what you do, but who you become. And this is the safest place in the world to answer your phone. So if it's ringing, don't even worry about it. We don't care. Um, I was like, I know I'm not the only one hearing that. It's totally fine. <laughs> you got to say something to leave the, the tension out of the room. It's okay. it's okay if that's you. It's fine. It happens to all of us. We love you. Um, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. That actually genuinely is. It doesn't just sound neat, it's actually true. Who you are becoming is the legacy that you're going to leave, and it's actually also who you're going to bring into eternity forever. You're bringing you. So if that's true, it's essential that we have a clear and complete vision of what God has in mind for us to become. And I think a lot of us have a a partial vision of that. Because I think a lot of times, you know, and we were talking about this at our class on Wednesday night, a lot of times if you ask people in the world, describe what a Christian is, what are they going to describe? You can't say it if you're in the class. They were going to describe all the things that Christians are against. That's very troublesome to me. That when you ask someone who is unchurched, what's a Christian like? They're basically going to describe someone that sounds pretty lame. They're going to name all of the things that we are against instead of saying, what did Jesus say? When Jesus told his disciples what they want to be described like by people outside the church, that we're, we're loving, we're known by our love, that's what people should talk about. Instead, they list a bunch of things that we believe that we're against. That's wild to me. And I think because we can get caught up on being blameless and, and part of blamelessness to us now has shifted from us not acting that way to us condemning and judging everyone else that acts that way. It's part of our, defi- our new definition of blamelessness. We should be known by what we're about primarily instead of what we're against Blameless, free of defects, and holy, set apart and seasoned over the years by the grace of God to be useful to him. So those are the two words we're going to sit on, and we're going to read now where I get those words from. It's Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. Last week, you guys stuck with me through just reading one word in Ephesians and spending the whole time in that, so we're going we're to do four verses today. So Ephesians 1, 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, apostle is someone that um, is sent out with this kingdom message to infiltrate the world with the message of the gospel, the message of the way that Jesus made a way for everyone to be a part of his eternal kingdom and family. That's what apostles are sent to do. And we see he was chosen to do that. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. If you didn't hear last, year's message, last week's message, he was, it was a 180 degree turn. He was going in one direction, basically to kill Christians, and Jesus met him and said, um, that's me that you're doing that to. So he was chosen by the will of God, Paul, Apostle Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints isn't, you don't have to, you know, be anything fancy to be a saint. If you're a Christian, the Bible calls you a saint. You don't have to like do a miracle and stuff. It's, it's just, you're, you're called a saint, you're in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, some of your ears perked up when I read, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I know for some people that's a little troublesome, that God would choose people, and I totally, totally understand. Uh, And we're going to get to that. The thing that you might be helpful to keep in mind, when we talk about God choosing people, we have to remember that there is... God never does anything that's not anchored and rooted in love because that's who he is. So even when we get to, you know, if you're a church folk, you know that this word predestination is coming up and we're going to have to talk about that. We're not talking about it this week. Alex isn't talking about it next week. Maybe if I build up the nerve, I'll talk about the week after that. But we will talk about predestination because the Bible says it and we can't really skip it. But it's a beautiful doctrine and I think you're going to like it. Let's look at holy and blameless. These two categories in which the Spirit is committed to helping us grow through these, what he calls, spiritual blessings from the heavenly places in Christ. All right, I made this little chart for us so that um, I'm going to fly through it. You can actually use this chart, take it home, and study it and think about it and begin to really understand why both of these concepts, holy and blameless, are important. So blameless, let's just go through it. Blameless is a negative. It's being known for what you don't do or what you didn't do. It's removing something. Removing sin, removing sinful tendencies, removing habits that are self-destructive to you and others. It's a negative. Holy is a positive, it's adding something. Blameless is emptying ourselves of destructive sin. Holiness is being filled with God's moral beauty. And there's like this evil spiritual conspiracy in the world where there's God's enemy who is trying to make us associate the word holy with some other words like judgmental or awkward or people that think they're too good for me or cold or law abiders or stuffy and so it's weird when when we become when I became a Christian I thought I was supposed to be a little bit like that. Like all of a sudden I'm supposed to start thinking I'm better than people because that's what Christians do, right? That's what we're supposed to do. All right, I can do that. I can act better than people because I don't do things you don't do. Like that's what people think holiness is. Holiness is actually the moral beauty of God. It's being set apart by God and being made, being given a beautiful character, predominantly loving Predominantly, the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character of God. Love, we're joyful. Do you think of that when you think of holy? You should. Love, joy, peace. You're a non-anxious presence in the world. You don't make people stressed. You make them more relaxed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. We always talk about these things because this is what holiness looks like. Tender-hearted. 
It's purging all of the spiritual pride out of you because a lot of Christians, especially when we've been reading the Bible a lot, we start thinking that we're secretly better than people. It's crazy, crazy, because it's exactly opposite of what Christ calls us to. Blameless, we resist. So we exercise this muscle of resistance. We flee from sin. So we resist the things that are going to be harmful to other people and harmful to ourselves and the things that are going to offend God because we're saying we don't trust you. We think what's best for us. We think we know what's best for us. So a beautiful example of this is is Joseph in Genesis 39. He is radically, physically fleeing from a situation that was probably difficult to flee from, but he was literally removing himself from the situation. Holiness, we don't resist, we receive. So we resist self-destructive stuff, we resist poison to receive life, to receive medicine, to receive goodness from God. Holiness is receiving God's character from him. Uh, Some helpful scriptures here, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, that's blameless. Paul's talking to Timothy. And then the second half, and he's talking about things that are destructive desires. He's talking, he's naming some destructive desires in the paragraph before that. And he's saying, flee those things. But he doesn't just say flee those things. He tells you what to run to. He says, but pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. He tells Timothy in the, in the second letter that he writes him, flee youthful passions. Youthful passions are all the things that we do that we think will make us feel better, and they might temporarily, but they actually have this draining and deadening effect on your soul in the long run. That's what youthful passions are. Feels good in the moment, you pay for it later. Flee youthful passions in the second part of that verse and pursue, again, righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Finally, again, this is from our class on Wednesday nights, Colossians 3, put away, what does he say, put away? This is how to be blameless. Put away sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, covetousness, however you say that word, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying. And don't just, don't just don't do those things. Do these things. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, put on love. It's not enough. It's just the first half of what we're supposed to do. If you don't do what you're not supposed to do, that's not enough. That's not complete. Flee these things and pursue these things. Put away these things and put on these things. Another way to think about this is there's two types of sin. We're not going to go too much into this. But there's two types of ways that you can sin. There's the sin of commission and there's the sin of omission. Sin of commission is when you do something you're not supposed to do. That's a sin of commission. So it's lying. You're not supposed to lie. Because when you're lying, you're protecting yourself or you're enhancing your reputation somehow. That's what lying is. You're either protecting yourself from someone thinking bad about you or you're enhancing your reputation. So we're not supposed to do that. So a sin of commission is lying, doing what you're not supposed to do. So if you want to be blameless, avoid sins of commission. 
But then there's the sins of omission. And a sin of omission is what we tend to ignore because it's much harder to do. Sin of omission is when you don't do what you're supposed to do. So someone's annoying you and you get impatient with them. That's a sin of omission. You're supposed to be patient. Someone's mean to you and so you're mean to them instead of being kind to them. That's a sin of, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be kind. We're supposed to love our enemies, right? We're supposed to forgive those who hurt us not necessarily putting ourselves back in the way of their hurt, but we're supposed to get to the place where we forgive. So when you don't, that's a sin of omission. So if you want to be, if you want to be blameless, avoid sins of commission. Don't do what you're not supposed to do. If you want to be holy, avoid sins of omission. Do what you're supposed to do. So let me give you some examples just to flesh this out, just to make sure we get this, because it's going to be really important for us to understand this concept for the rest of Ephesians. If you don't commit adultery, you're being blameless. But if you love and serve your spouse consistently and sacrificially, you're being holy. It's crazy to think that, like, would you, would you express your love for your spouse if you said, what more do you want me to do? I never, I never cheated on you. <laughs> like, how else can I express my love for you? Uh, it's, that's half of it. And I'm, I'm, making, I'm saying that in jest because that's kind of what we do as Christians. This is why we're known for what we're against and what we don't do. Because we, we got the blameless thing down. We don't have the holy thing down. All right, another one. If you don't get drunk on wine, you're being blameless. If your life is overflowing with divine joy, you're being holy. That's Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. It says don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it describes way that, ways that this divine joy in you comes out in conversations with people. So good for you. You don't get drunk. Awesome. That's half the battle. That's a pretty low bar. <laughs> That's not something to be proud of. Like, good job. Is your speech filled with just melodious love is almost how Paul describes it. It just comes out. People around you and they sense just goodness and love and grace and joy and gratitude. If your language isn't offensive or crude, you're blameless. If your language is marked by thankfulness and gratitude, you're holy. That's Ephesians 5.4. Now, this is a good one. If you rebuke a fellow Christian caught in the snare of sin, you're blameless. If you do so with gentleness and humility, you're holy. That's Galatians 6.1. I've been rebuked before, shocking, probably shockingly to you guys. I've been rebuked several times by like, elders of churches and stuff. So um, I was, when I was a youth pastor, we had all these rules in place at the church specifically because of me. Not allowed doing that anymore. And uh, I just, I'm contrarian. I like pushing buttons. It's kind of how God made me. I'm feisty, and he, he's using that somehow, but I, I do have to be a little careful. So sometimes I step over, I, I step over the line. It happens. So... Two particular times, I remember um, at my last church, one of the elders came in, or one of the elders called me at the office, and I had a hard time. He was, he uh, didn't 
feel holy to me. He just didn't, he was off. And he was upset about his feelings. Were, I mean, his, he was upset about something that I did that was wrong, and I needed to be called on it. And it wasn't like a huge thing. I probably wouldn't have rebuked him, but it, it is what it is. He calls me at the church, and he says, I need you to come to my house. I'm like, well, can you come here? No, I need you to come to my house. Is anybody else going to be there? No. No, what's going on? <laughs> what's up? Come to my house. Okay. I mean, I'm bigger than this guy. I'm not scared. I'm not, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I go to his house, and he sits me down, and he, he's, like, very authoritarian. He's like, you need to sit down. He's, like, way overreaching. Um, the tone didn't match the sin. I sit down, and he brings his wife in, which is really weird. He has her sit down, too. I'm like, why is, your, why is your wife here? This is, what's going on? And he begins to like lambast me. He lays into me about this thing and he talks about all the ways that he was, you know, he was offended because of this and um, I was not thoughtful and, you know, I, I was sinful and I just, my response at the end of it was like, you know, I'm, you're, you're right and I'm sorry and I will repent of that and you didn't do this right and I'm leaving now. And then maybe a year later or so, and he, he ends up like leaving the church, and that elder just kind of goes off the deep end in some weird ways. But another elder comes into my office. It was right after one of our elder meetings. And he was very gentle. And he sat down and he said, I hate doing this because I love you, but I'm doing this because I love you. And you said something in there that you went a little too far, and I think you know you did. And he was so humble. He said, tears. His name was Titus. And I repented and cried with him and was restored and apologized to other people. That's what you're going after. When a Christian rebukes something, someone, we don't enjoy it. We're bringing you back on the path towards life and it breaks our heart that we have to have this weird, awkward conversation. That's the spirit. That's why Paul said, when someone is caught in the snare of sin, send a spiritual person. In other words, someone that's not excited to do it. Their heart is broken. They're tenderhearted. They actually care about you and it informs the way they talk to you about it. Don't send some young person that's really excited to be in this conversation. Do it the right way. It's not enough for you to rebuke them and get them back on the right track. If you don't do it in love and gentleness and humility, that's what Paul says, it's, you're, not, you're not right. You're not right. It's a good lesson for me. And it's a good lesson for you when you have to have hard conversations with me. That's what we do for each other, though. We love, we love each other enough to have hard conversations, don't we? Isn't that what we do? If you're going in a path that's hurting people, that's self-destructive or hurting people that you love, we're going to step in there. That's what we do. Finally, if you're not argumentative, but you know, you're blameless. You don't like getting in fights with people. Okay, good, you're being blameless. If you're kind, you're not just not argumentative. If you're kind, you're holy. That's 2 Timothy 2.24. The Bible pits these things against each other. It says, don't do this and do this. It always does this. And somehow, the second half of the verse is often invisible to us. And we could go on and on and on. And the key to Christian maturity is to do 
both, is to grow in both of these things, blamelessness and holiness. And I'm emphasizing blameless or holiness because I think it's always gonna be tempting for us as a church to focus on blamelessness without being holy because you can measure it. It's concrete. You know when you've done enough. It's easier to not, it's easier to say, yeah, I didn't lie than it is to say, yeah, I spoke the truth with grace and joy. It's easier to measure. How about this? You can remove foul language, be blameless, in your own strength without the help of the Holy Spirit. But you can't replace it with divine joy speech without the Holy Spirit. To say that you are growing spiritually by doing something that you can do without God's help isn't actually legitimate spiritual growth. Spiritual growth requires the Spirit to do the work. Does that make sense? Did I lose you guys on that? That was a little off the cuff, so I get nervous when I do that. We good? All right. A person might be able to manage growing in blamelessness apart from God, but they can't grow in holiness apart from God. That's what I wanted to say. And we should be able to offer genuine proof to the watching world that we've got the real disease. We've actually been infected with the gospel. People ought to look at our lives and say, wow, you have genuinely changed this past year at a deep character level. It's not just you stopped cussing. It's that now you speak with a tender heart and with love and with grace and you're listening when I'm talking to you and you have a joy that's never been. That's the type of stuff. That's genuine spiritual growth evidence And we ought to be able to show that to the world because when we become holy, we put the beautiful character of our Father on display. All right. I was sitting in a stuffy classroom in Fort Lauderdale and I was with a bunch of other pastors and they were... Um, we were talking with this, uh, well, we were being taught. It was actually like a master class in pastoring by, uh, by Steve Brown, who I just love this saint so much. He's an amazing guy. He was just spitting all these wisdom. We were like, you get, repeat that again. Let me say that again. I was trying to write every single word he said because something happened when he started teaching us in the room that was like, this is, this is the stuff that I've needed to hear all my life type of stuff. And one of the things that he said that just made so much sense is this. I had him say it like three times so I could get it right. He said, he said friends, most of you are going to be pastors. Most of you will probably be senior pastors. And let me just give you a clue before you start. From a, take it from an old man that's been doing it for a long time. He said, 10% of the people in a church are some of the meanest people on earth. 10% of the people in a church are some of the meanest people on earth. 90% may be confused, but they're really good people. The problem is that the 10% are often in leadership because they talk about God a lot. And they talk a lot. And if you compliment and affirm the 10%, 
you will live a comfortable life because they'll leave you alone. But if you minister to the 90%, you'll go through hell and you might not survive. But if you do, you'll create a church that is a healing place. And the world will beat a pathway to your door. And he said, that's the vision of the local church. Not doing the things we're not supposed to do is not enough. And if that's all we focus on, then we're going to grow judgmental and cold. We must also be holy, filled and overflowing with the love and the grace of God. And if through the grace of God we're able to manage that, our little community here at Southside will become a healing place for people. It will. So I want to end with this. What if God was blameless but not holy? Think about that. What if God was blameless but not holy? I mean, he would have been perfectly within his rights to punish us for our rebellion for all of eternity, for stiff-arming him, for saying, we, don't, we want to do this without you. Thanks for making us. We'll take it from here. He would have remained blameless if he said to us, okay, fine, you made your bed, you lied. Perfectly within his rights, he would have remained blameless in his sovereign, beautiful, perfect nature. But he's not just blameless. He's also holy. And his holy nature, which is love and patience and long-suffering and mercy and kindness and justice, wouldn't allow it. So he made a way for us in Christ to be forgiven, to be made whole again. Because he's not just blameless, he's holy. And where our rebellion runs deep, his grace runs deeper. And where we stumble, he sets us on a high rock. And where we wander, he calls us back by name. And where we've been broken, he brings us back to wholeness. Where we're dirty, he makes us clean. And where we're enslaved to sin, he sets us free. And all he asks of us is for us to surrender our hearts, all of it, to him. So we're going to have the music team come up here, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a prayer to God. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.